0: Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy.
1: And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash Locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today.
2: Warning. Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised.
1: Welcome back to Check the Locks Podcast. As always, I'm John Connor,
0: And I'm Olivia Cornu.
1: Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case. This is our Halloween episode, Olivia. Super excited. We're going to talk a little bit about that here in just a minute. But before, as always, how are you? Great to see you. Happy to have you. How has your week been?
0: My week has been great. How are you? I noticed that you're a little bald today.
1: I am a little bald. I caught a case of the baldies, so... Uh, we had that birthday party we were talking about last week. I needed a haircut. I was short on time and feeling manic. And so it's just gone now. So it was going to happen eventually. I just sped up the process. So usually we chat a little bit. We talk about what's going on a little bit more in depth, but I don't want to do that this week because we have a very special Halloween guest. That's right. If you're listening to this episode, it is coming out on Halloween. And if you have followed me, you know, the John Versations podcast that I did before Check the Locks, before me and Olivia teamed up, then you may be familiar with our very first Check the Locks full show guest. So I'm excited. I don't know if you were kind of feeling the energy, Olivia, but to have like our first guest on, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be awesome. Oh
0: yeah. I'm super excited. And I'm so excited for like a spooky Halloween kind of case.
1: Our guest today is the author of the book, The Realist Bride. She is also a horror film critic for allhorror.com. You know her. You love her. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the extremely talented Jessica Gomez. Jessica, thank you so much for being here. How are you?
2: I'm great. Thank you guys for having me. I'm very excited.
0: I'm so excited and nice to meet you, Jessica.
2: Yes, you too. This is my I've known John for a long time, but this is my first time meeting Olivia. So we'll have fun today.
1: Well, you were kind of like my Michael Myers. I don't know if you realize this, Jessica, but when I think about Halloween, I think about two things. I think about Michael Myers and I think about you. So yep. <laughs> it's awesome to have you. Thank you so much. I know, you know, you're a mom, you're an author, you're constantly working, balancing those two things. And for you to make time to come here and hang out with us, super awesome to have you. And we're eternally grateful. So thank you so much for doing it.
2: Yeah, I'm a fan of the show. So I'm I'm very excited to be here.
0: Don't write us a bad review. <laughs>
1: Now, this week is a little bit different because Jessica is our guest and she has actually researched the case. She's going to be presenting it to us. So, number one, we're super stoked to have a guest. But Olivia and I didn't really need to do much this week, which is a lot different for us. So, really looking forward to it. Cannot wait to hear your story. I don't know, Jessica. I've been excited about it since we were talking about it. Should we just jump on into it?
2: Yeah, I I really gained a lot of respect for you guys. Not that I didn't already respect you, but I, I I (laughs) I didn't realize how much time it takes to research these cases. And so when I was going through this, you know, you have to go through so many different news articles and then you kind of have to cross check and make sure that you're not bringing up something that's not true or hasn't been verified or anything like that. So there is a lot to it. And with these cases, there usually is so much of a background to it of the victim, of the killer. So there I, I really appreciate you guys doing this work every week um, twice a week now so that all of us can enjoy your episodes.
1: Well, we really appreciate you doing the work this week. so that we can have a break.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. I got really I got really into it. So yeah, I, I enjoyed it.
1: When we've talked about that before, people have asked us, like, would you want to offload the researching to somebody else? Like, would that make things easier? And I don't know if you felt this way when you were researching the case, but doing the research and kind of finding the details and putting the story together and thinking about like how you want to present it to me, that makes me feel connected to the Mm -hmm. case that we're presenting. And I don't know if that was the same kind of feeling for you. Like a lot of the times we get done researching. I'm like, oh, now I feel like personally connected to this in a weird way. Did you feel that going through this story?
2: Absolutely. And I wasn't expecting that. But as I'm going through and learning about the family and everything that's happened, when you take so much time to research something and you kind of get to know these people, you know, obviously you don't know them, but it's almost like you're getting to know characters in a book where you're coming to an understanding of what's happened and how it happened. And I definitely feel differently at the end of this than I did in the beginning because I saw the case, I chose it. Once I actually was doing the research, it made a big difference in how I felt about it.
1: Yeah, and I totally agree. And Olivia, I don't know if you want to add anything to this, but it's, you dive into it and I've had the experience where I'm like, oh, this case looks really interesting. It'll probably take me like an hour or two to research. And then 10 hours later, you're like, oh my God, that!" like the story is so much more involved. I think that kind of lends itself to why you begin to feel invested in the players in these stories. Like you said, it's almost like they're characters in a book because you've been with them for 10 hours of your day. You know what I mean? It, it gets pretty in-depth.
0: Yeah, I always think that I can break out a case in like three hours. And I'm like, oh, I can do this. in eight hours, 10 hours later, you got a case. So it does, it takes a lot of time. So, but we are very thankful that you are here for our Halloween episode. Um, and I'm really excited. I didn't read about it. So I have no clue what we're about to hear.
2: Okay, well, it's a bit of a wild ride, so... And it's a Halloween theme. Put on my seatbelt.
1: Case story, right?
2: Yes, it was on Halloween 10 years ago, so it's the 10-year anniversary
1: oh my this God. year. I'm so excited. Even I, better. Yeah, let's jump into it, because I really yeah. want to hear what's going on.
2: Okay, on halloween day in 2012 authorities in isabella county michigan began working to locate missing 24 year old mother rebecca jane gay who was reportedly last seen at her home on m20 in broomfield township about 10 miles west of mount pleasant michigan now the mount pleasant area is the big area near broomfield township but that's not saying much i'm from michigan um So Mount Pleasant is a college town because Central Michigan University is there, and there is Soaring Eagle Casino there, and that is about it. So they have a population of about 21,000, and then the student population is right around that number as well. And then Broomfield Township, the population is only 1,600. So this is a very small town that this happened.
0: This kind of reminds me of where I lived in Iowa, where, like, Iowa City had the students and the college, but all the little towns were, like, small.
2: Yeah, and this, I feel like a lot of college towns are really cute. You know, uh, Michigan has Ann Arbor, which is a, a big city, and there's a lot to do there. That is not the situation here. There is nothing around Uh, Central Michigan University. It's very um, there's like a lot of farms nearby. It's there's there's not much going
1: on over there. My sister went to Central Michigan University. and I remember making drives up there and I'm like, oh, there's like nothing up here. It's kind of like, yeah, it's not a
2: pretty drive. There's nothing to look
0: at. So I take it this isn't by where y'all are from in Michigan.
2: No, it's a couple hours away from where we're from. Um, So she was reportedly last seen at 6.50 a.m. on Wednesday, October 31st. Family and friends had not heard from her, which was very unlike her, according to Isabella County Sheriff Leo, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, I'll do my best, it's Mayo Dazewski. She was reported missing at noon on Halloween when she did not show up for work at Goodwill, which was very uncharacteristic for her. There was a very quick police response because this made the news that night. So she was reported missing on Halloween, and by Halloween evening, this was in the news. Everybody in town knew about it. Um, We eventually come to find out that the last sight of her was a lie because by 6.50 a.m. she was already dead. So Rebecca Gay was a loving mother to her three-year-old son. She was a graduate of cosmetology school, and she was described by family and friends as a cheerful, trusting, happy young woman with a bright future ahead of her. She had just been promoted to management at work. Um, Unknown to her, her boyfriend of two years, Aaron Quinn, had recently purchased an engagement ring, which was really sad, so she didn't know, but he was going to propose to her. And Rebecca and Aaron had plans to take her son trick-or-treating that night. A co-worker went to Rebecca's home to check on her, and the landlord let them in. There was a purse on the table, but Rebecca was not there, and it was then that she was reported as a missing person. Sheriffs executed a warrant for the search of her trailer and her vehicle, um, which was found abandoned at a local bar. Police were able to identify a section of carpet in her home that had been recently cleaned. As far as suspects, Rebecca's boyfriend Aaron and the father of her child were questioned, And they were cleared. And then they brought in 55-year-old John D. White, who is Rebecca's mother, Sally's boyfriend. So they brought him in for questioning. And White was not only Sally's boyfriend, he was also Rebecca's neighbor in her mobile home park and a pastor of a tiny congregation. And when I say tiny, I mean like 14 people. Um, And he asked them to pray for Rebecca while she was missing. He had been a frequent visitor to Rebecca's trailer and often babysat her son while she worked. So he was a trusted family friend.
1: They felt comfortable with him.
2: Yeah, exactly. From what I was reading, the neighbors said he was at her trailer quite often. He babysat her son every Wednesday.
1: It is really crazy as you're going through to kind of think about how quickly, because normally in a lot of these cases, it's, you know, we report the person missing and then there's days or you know a period of yeah. time but it seems like it maybe it is because it is such a small town but it seems like they were really quick to act especially if her disappearance made the news the same night that's almost unheard of
2: and i think it was probably because it was halloween that it kind of had that sensational thing to it this mother goes missing on halloween so that might have had an element to it as well But I thought the same thing. I'm like, I watch true crime documentaries all the time. And the response is never that fast. Like the police presence, they were on it in this case. So it was really nice to read that for once because a lot of times they wait a little bit too long. And they say, oh, maybe she ran off or, oh, maybe she got sick of being a mom. And, you know, they always go through the rigmarole before they actually believe that there is a missing person
0: like the case I did with uh, Shannon and Christopher, where the family eventually went out looking for her missing car because the police weren't willing to write it off as a missing person yet. So the family is actually who found where her car was located.
1: It's also really interesting to think too, that the type of person that she was, because we've done a lot of cases where, you know, it's sex workers or people who kind of live in these fringe areas of society and that's where that delay is where it's like well you know their lifestyle they might have just hopped a bus to tampa or something like that but when it's a a girlfriend a mother somebody who shows up for work every day it seems like there's a little bit more of a priority on that and it definitely doesn't feel right you know that's kind of what i was thinking as we were going through it's like wow it's a little weird that some of these cases get elevated in a way that you know others should be elevated in the same way but
2: i always feel that because a lot of serial killers they will prey on sex workers because they know that they're an easier target because a lot of them don't have family ties. They may not be local. They are known to law enforcement as being like a problem, but there's a human element to it where there are officers who don't think of them the same as they think of other people. So they put less time or resources toward it.
0: I always say that everybody has somebody that cares about them. A lot of times my patients, they, everybody's like, we can't find family. I'm like, everybody has somebody. Somebody cares about these people. We're all human. Somebody loves these people, regardless of what they do.
1: Yeah. And I didn't mean to derail your episode so early, but all I'm saying is let's make sex work safe. You know (laughs) what I mean? But anyway, back to the story. John D. White.
2: Yes. So he was brought in for questioning and the police noted that he had a cut on his nose. But he explained that away as a shelf falling on him, which apparently at first was plausible. He was initially uncooperative with police and would not submit to a polygraph. But eventually he broke down and took one and failed. I tried to find information about what questions were asked and what he failed. I was unable to do that. And then I also read something that Sally, um, Rebecca's mother, and his girlfriend was the one who was kind of pushing for him to take the polygraph. And after he was pushed into it, then he did it, which was kind of interesting because I thought to myself, did he do this to appease her? Because he thinks they're just going to continue dating. It it was interesting that he was like, well, if Sally wants me to do it, then I have to do it. Um, And so I don't know if he thought he was going to pass, but he failed.
1: Well, I wonder if it was to maybe throw her off of any, And again, you know, we're not far enough in the story. I don't know if this, it sounds like this guy did it, but if he did do it, I wonder if part of it was like, she's pushing me to do it. If I don't do it, it makes me look guilty and maybe I can get away and and pass it. Yeah. You know, and you know, maybe we keep dating for a couple of years. We buy a condo in Tampa and just see how things shake
2: out. (laughs) Everything's going to be cool. (laughs) So around the time he failed the polygraph, blood spatter was found in Rebecca's trailer, and blood and a necklace were found in the back of White's truck. White was arrested at 8 a.m. on November 1st. So this is very fast. So she's reported missing at noon on Halloween, and by 8 a.m. the next day, they've already made an arrest.
0: I almost wonder if Sally had a reason to suspect John.
2: That's a good point, because if she really thought in her heart of hearts, he could never then she would be like, you need to get out there and find what really happened.
0: Yeah. Like, it's weird to me that mom thinks that her boyfriend, the pastor in the small town murdered her daughter.
1: Or would have to push him to do a polygraph. Yeah. You would think the man of God would be like, yeah, I didn't do it. I'll I'll take a, a polygraph.
2: Yeah. And apparently his congregation of 14 or whatever it was, they were taking his side when he was brought in for questioning and, They didn't think that he was capable of doing anything to Rebecca, but then after his arrest, then they changed their tune. So he was arrested at 8 a.m., and Sergeant David Patterson established a friendly rapport with him and was able to get a full confession from him for the killing of Rebecca Gay, and the motive was as sickening as the crime. So White admitted to thinking about killing Rebecca for about two weeks before walking into her mobile home about 2 a.m. on October 31st. White said that he had viewed online pornography showing killings and sex with corpses. White had made the call, um, that seven or 650 call, saying that she had been seen at that time. And so he had made that up because she was already dead by then. So he told police he went to her trailer After drinking four or five beers, killed her and later disposed of her body. And I am curious about the drinking the beer part because they thought of it as a way for him to gain courage to go over and attack her. But I'm wondering if in his own deluded mind, he thought he was giving himself an out like I was drunk, and I didn't mean to, or I would never do that if I didn't drink or something like that, because it doesn't sound like he was inebriated when he came in, and he carried out the killing and moved her body. He did a lot of stuff, so he couldn't have been super drunk,
0: no, I mean, I can drink four fat beers and beaches. yeah,
2: the, yeah, it's not like he said, "Oh, I had a fifth you know, of vodka a or something. pack to myself, yeah. yeah.
1: I thought Olivia was going to say, I could have four or five beers and move a body. No problem. (laughs) That does sound like something I'd say. Yeah. But that was my question too, is like, how big is this guy? Because, you know, I could, I could drink four or five beers and like, I'd be feeling good, but I'm definitely not like ready to murder somebody killed my girlfriend's daughter. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't happen. He's
2: not a frail man. So this is not something that I don't think, I don't think four to five beers would make him drunk and I also am curious if he had anything to drink at all. That's interesting. Unfortunately, Rebecca's son was home while this was carried out. Um he was likely sleeping at the time of the attack, but police were kind of wishy-washy on that. So I don't know if they said they couldn't confirm if he was asleep or not. So I really I'm choosing to believe that he was because he was only three and that was his mom. So after he killed Rebecca, he took care of her son for the rest of the morning and got him dressed in his Halloween costume and then delivered him to his dad later on at a Meyer grocery store, just like he did every Wednesday.
0: This Uh, is ridiculous. I'm sorry. I'm just like, I don't even know.
2: Yeah, it's it's really it's really sickening.
1: Well, and Jessica, you and I talked about this last year. Uh, when we were doing our Halloween thing, but you and I are both being parents. We're both deeply affected by both movies that involve children and true crime that it just hits a little bit different. Yes. Thinking about this little kid being home. I'm with you. I'm, I'm praying that the child was asleep. You know what I mean? Because otherwise just thinking about what this kid witnessed, it's absolutely heartbreaking. It's one of those things. It's like lumps up your chest immediately.
2: That's how I felt. I I felt so sick to my stomach about it because this is supposed to be a fun holiday for him. He's only three, so he's getting ready to go trick or treating with his mom. And then he's probably like, "Where's my mom?" And who knows what John D. White said to him? Maybe he said, "Oh, your mom went off and left," or who knows what he said to make himself look better. And then police had noted that. He seemed to like really care for this boy. And I just thought, well, obviously not because he killed his mom, and like ruined his life. So right. I he didn't care about him that much. But yeah, that he got him dressed in his Halloween costume and then just took him to his dad like everything was fine.
1: I wonder if some of it is even like a sense of guilt after the fact. Because we've talked about that before, you know, like a lot of serial killers will, you know, cover the face of the victim or close their eyes. So they're not looking at them, you know, something like that, where it's like this feeling of guilt for what you've done after. And I wonder if taking care of the child was that for him, where it's like, I immediately know that I've done something wrong. And this is kind of how I can justify or be like, I know I did that wrong, but like, look, I took care of the baby. Like I got yeah, the you Halloween rationalize costume. it yeah.
2: saying, oh, well, he'll still be taken care of.
0: I wonder if by uh, John killing Rebecca, if he thought that Sally and himself would take full custody of the son. Like if he had this like complex, like, oh, I'll go after her and then we'll be able to raise the child. Or if it was something like that. You know, I just don't understand if he cared about this kid so much, why he would kill the mother. Unless he had like an ulterior motive, like, oh, me and Sally will raise this child.
2: Yeah, I don't know if that was, I don't know that I would call it a motive, but I would call it like him rationalizing here's what's going to happen next like it'll be fine because Sally and I will take care of him him." yeah
1: I was also curious as to you know because he's saying that like I watched pornography of you know killings and sex with corpses and I'm wondering what in his head made him connect that with his girlfriend's daughter
2: the only thing he said was that she was a cute girl
1: oh that's creepy
2: yeah Mm mm-hmm so it was routine for him to drop off her son on Wednesdays. So it seemed like a normal day to the boy's father. He was had his costume on, had no reason to believe anything was out of the ordinary. So because of the nature of the motive, with the like the necrophilia motive and I'm sure it being a Halloween murder, this story blew up into national news. Basically, it just got sensationalized and was just a blip on the radar because they had attention grabbing headlines like, you know, pastor killed woman for necrophilia. So it was just there was like a lot on Halloween. So there was a lot of that. But if you look at the articles on these major news outlets that are national, it was very little information about the case. It was just those bullet points because they're like, this is a weird story that happened on Halloween. So it was kind of sad in a way because there was no follow up on these big headlines. It was just, here's this weird thing that happened, but it happened to someone who was a really caring mother and she didn't really get justice in the media, in my opinion, unless you're looking at something like M Live, which is Michigan news.
1: 2012 was very much around the time of like clickbait starting to be a big thing where it's like, yeah. here's a big headline. We don't have to have a lot of details in the story. We just need people to click so that they drive traffic to our site. So I could see exactly like you said, this being a pastor, the necrophilia aspect, and it's all on Halloween.
0: Right. I would have clicked on it.
1: Yeah, if you're scrolling through Facebook news, you would have been like, oh, what's going on? You know what I mean? I want to see what, what's happening. So There's
0: nothing more frustrating than clicking on something that sounds so interesting and then you read the whole story and it says nothing. Like I just wasted like two minutes of my time.
2: Yeah, it's like I could have probably done this on my own. Like right. a, lot, a lot of the stories, there's just totally bare minimum. White told police that he struck Gay on the head with a rubber mallet several times until she was unconscious and she was still breathing, so he tightened a large zip tie around her neck um, and strangled her. Pretty gruesome death for someone that he knew and cared about. And to my understanding, never did anything to him. This was not like a revenge kill. You know, she trusted him with her son, so... It's not like he killed her, like, shot her with a gun and then was going to rape her. It was that he really took his time doing it. So it wasn't just the sex aspect of it. He, I think he enjoyed, like, the killing. Like, to take a rubber mallet and, like, pound somebody on the head until they die, that takes a lot.
0: The zip tie is a first for me. That, like, that is, that's, that's a lot. And I wonder if maybe he did, chose to do it this way. Because he had plans of having sex with her once she was dead. And so maybe if he made it too bloody or, you know, shot or stabbed her, maybe that wasn't
2: really his thing. Yeah,
1: maybe. Well, it sounds like part of the turn on for him was the act of like taking her life.
2: Right. It wasn't just the sex portion. It was that he wanted to kill her.
1: Yeah. Which is crazy. Like we've talked about it before, but it's just so hard to think. Not that I'm the most normal human being. You know, I think everybody has weird thoughts and stuff like that. But yeah, to have that be your thought process or that it seems like you're a certain kind of monster. You know what I mean? Which is it's really hard to to think about the fact that there are people out there that that does that.
2: Yeah, and he planned it. He said he had been thinking about it for two weeks. And just as the story unfolds, you see, you know, he obviously brought like a toolkit over there. So he knew what he was going to use. And he moved her car and then he disposed of her body elsewhere. So he clearly had a plan. This wasn't like he went over there, they got into an argument. There was a crime of passion. It wasn't like that. He clearly had a strategic plan where then he is telling the police, Oh, yeah, I saw her at 650 to kind of throw them off. There was there was a lot
1: to it and it was definitely premeditated. Yeah, no one's buying manslaughter. No one's like No, oh.
0: he had a murder kit, just like our other case.
1: Israel keys and his murder kits.
0: His murder kits.
2: <laughs> Crazy. So I was not able to find out if she was awake or sleeping when he entered her trailer, but because of what he said, I think she was sleeping. He said that while he was hitting her over the head with the mallet, Rebecca said, I know you. So it sounds like she kind of was like woken up to this.
1: Well, and here's something I wanted to ask you guys, too, because I think this is something that we haven't touched on that it is absolutely terrifying to me. This is somebody you trust, right? Like you trust them enough to let yeah. them take your son to their father right. every Wednesday. And you wake up from a dead sleep because somebody's hit you in the head with a mallet, and it's this—you're looking at this person that you trust, and like the sense of confusion that you must have, just the sheer terror going through. Because I would imagine up up until that very second, this is somebody that you feel safe with, and it's immediately shattered, and that is terrifying to me. So it could easily be one of you. Like if I woke up and Jessica—I've known you for 25 years—if I got hit in the head with a mallet and I woke up. And was looking at you, there would be so much confusion going on.
2: Yeah, I was just going to say, you'd be confused first. Like, what is happening? And then before you know what's happening, you're just being assaulted. This
0: is a guy that if something bad were happening to her, like, he's probably one of the first people she would call and be like, hey, John, can you get over here? Like, somebody just came in my house or whatever, whatever, you know, because it's her mom's boyfriend.
2: Yeah. And he's a neighbor. He lived, you know, a few trailers down from her. So he obviously was an integral part of her life. So he said that after she was dead, he undressed her body and touched her, though he told police he tried to get an erection but couldn't. And he couldn't remember if he had raped her dead body. Autopsy results would later show that a sexual assault did occur on her body while she was alive or shortly after death. So if she was alive, I hope she was unconscious.
0: Me too.
1: Yeah. And again, five beers wouldn't stop me from remembering what I did. You know what I mean?
2: Right. And obviously he's been thinking about this quite a bit. So they'll never have all the answers to what exactly happened. But there was an assault. In some way. Um, And then he said that he loaded her body bloody towels. He used to clean up her blood and the rubber mallet into one large garbage bag and put it into the bed of his truck. And he said that it ripped and some items spilled out. So that's probably why there was blood and the necklace in the back of his truck. He then drove her car to the barn door parking lot to make it look like she had been abducted. And this was very near where she lived. He threw Rebecca's phone and car keys in the trailer park trash container and dumped the other items at the intersection where he dumped her body. He eventually told police where they could find Rebecca in a ditch behind pine trees near the intersection of Pickard and Coldwater in Broomfield, where they were able to locate her body on November 1st. And I looked at this location on a map and there's a cemetery right there. It was just really creepy. Yeah. So he didn't put her in the cemetery. He put her like in a ravine.
1: I wonder if he thought maybe it was a low traffic area, you know, like cemeteries aren't necessarily always the most like hopping places, you know, unless you live in new Orleans and that's where all the kids make out.
2: I heard that. Olivia. <laughs> I've heard that before. I've heard that before. We make out in uh, cemeteries. Yeah. <laughs> I thought of it differently. I thought maybe that was his way of, putting her where she was supposed to go because he did know her and I guess cared for her in a way that he could care for someone. So maybe that was his way of saying like, Oh, I kind of dropped her in like the best place I possibly could.
1: Like his way of laying her to rest. You know? Yeah,
2: that's what I gathered from it. Um, he didn't say that because they didn't mention the cemetery. I just was looking at it on the map. I'm like, oh, my God, this intersection is a cemetery.
0: This is what we call speculation.
2: Yes. <laughs> yes. We're all just speculating on what could have been the motivation, because obviously, who knows with this guy?
1: Yeah, we're very careful on this podcast to make sure we use the words <laughs> allegedly and oh, speculation. Okay, yes.
2: allegedly. <laughs> oh, last week I was
0: like, yeah, he killed his wife. And he's like, oh, no, yeah. he didn't.
1: Right. He allegedly killed, <laughs> his allegedly wife.
0: Yeah. killed his wife. I'm like, I like owning the damn.
1: a home. I don't want to be sued. <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: They can have mine. I've had to replace everything this week. I'm done.
2: So Chief Judge Paul Chamberlain ordered White be held without bond after a video arraignment that day on charges of open murder. And that's where a jury can decide between first and second degree murder. And on first degree premeditated murder and the homicide of Rebecca Gay. So, unfortunately, Rebecca was not White's first victim.
0: I was waiting if th- to see if this was going to happen.
2: Yes. So, in 1981, he pleaded no contest to assault with intent to commit murder in the stabbing of a 17-year-old neighbor in Battle Creek, which is also in Michigan. That's where this a lot of cereal is made.
1: Kellogg Factory is there, yeah.
2: It smells like Lucky Charms in the city. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, again, a very... No, nothing, to nothing, there, <laughs> nothing to do. There's nothing around there. Nothing to
1: do. Smells I think, like lucky charms and murder.
0: I think we yeah. had the Quaker. I think Quaker was close to Iowa City in Cedar Rapids. Quaker? I think there was a...
2: Oh, yes. Quaker. So she survived. She told the story of what happened. He invited her into his basement to check out what he said was a stock car racetrack he'd set up. And then he attacked her in the basement of his home, choking her and then stabbing her 15 times in the chest and the back with a hunting knife. The victim said White told her, this isn't my first time. Just shut up. You're making this more difficult than it has to be. So this guy's terrifying. How
0: is this man a pastor? I don't care if he's got a congregation of two or 2,000. How did no one know this about him? In such a small town, you would think like sheriffs and things would like, maybe not, they don't look into like the local pastor, but you would think someone in this small town would know something about
1: him.
2: The sheriff said he was not on our radar. They did not know.
1: When you would think about it, Battle Creek is a small town and then you move to another small town.
2: Right. They're not talking to each other.
1: Right. And I'm sure people aren't like, well, let me look into his background. And when you have that kind of background where you're from. Such a small place. I wonder. I would like to know, like going back, if that was kind of a pattern for him, if it was just kind of small town to small town to small town to small town.
2: That that does make sense.
1: Yeah, I think people think of Michigan and they're like, oh, Detroit, Ann Arbor, like big cities. No,
2: most of it is nothing.
1: It's flat and tiny, like flat and yes. tiny little towns. Yes, there
2: are little little pockets of there's major cities like Detroit, Ann Arbor, and then there's suburbs that surround them. And once you get past the suburbs, there's a whole lot of nothing. There's there's farmland. It's just flat. There's a lot of these small towns where you don't even necessarily know your neighbors because the lots are very far apart from each other. This was in 1981, so between these two cases, there's almost 30 years. What made this interesting is that it seemed like he stopped himself and then summoned his wife and then one of them called the police. So she's only alive because he stopped. He was sentenced to five to ten years in prison for the assault. Why it was so short in the first place, I don't know. But he served only two years because his sentence was overturned on appeal that his attorney did not raise an insanity defense. He was resentenced to probation on a charge of assault with intent to commit great bodily harm less than murder and released from prison. So he only served two Tell years. Tell me
0: how stabbing someone 10 to 15 times is assault with intent to gra- cause great bodily harm, but not attempted murder. To a child. She's 17.
1: I don't get the less than murder part when you stab somebody 15 times. That seems like you're trying to commit some murder.
2: It must have been because he stopped himself, but it doesn't matter. She still could have died from her injuries. And that was the intent. He wasn't just like, you know, stabbing her on the arm and he was done with it. He was trying to kill her. So later in a 1994 case in Kalamazoo County, which is on the west side of the state, uh, White became a suspect in the death of 26-year-old Vicki Sue Wall after police recovered her vehicle in a Meyer parking lot. This guy really likes Meyer. Mm-hmm. Surveillance footage from the store's parking lot showed Wall getting into White's truck. And I'm like, is this the same truck? But it was, a, it was <laughs> years, years later, so I don't think it was. But um, she was seen getting into White's truck in the early hours of July 11th, 1994, which was the last day she was seen. Her body was found in August 1994, nude with a T-shirt and bra wrapped around her neck. She was so badly decomposed that a cause of death could not be determined. So it's very hot and humid in the summer in Michigan. So I assume, you know, she had been there for over a month. So they just couldn't they just couldn't tell what exactly happened to her.
1: Now, this is interesting well, because, you know, we we're kind of talking about the towns because I wonder if he was actually living in the Kalamazoo area at that time. But in 1990, Kalamazoo's population was 80,290. And it was actually the 276th largest city in the United States. So it's actually, the population okay. has actually dropped since the 90s. But with what we were talking about earlier, I wonder if he was living in Kalamazoo specifically, or if, again, Kalamazoo's that big city, but as soon as you get out of that pocket, those are all west side lake houses, you know what I mean, Area. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if he was in a smaller area outside and just traveled back and forth.
2: So Kalamazoo does have a college and so there is a downtown area, but a lot of that area is kind of the same as what we were talking about where there is not a huge city there. There's a lot of houses that are on large lots and it's small town enough. It's not like a major metropolitan area. So he had checked himself into the Kalamazoo Regional Psychiatric Hospital shortly after his meeting with Wall at Meyer, and he was arrested at the hospital in September 1994, about a week after her body was found. White was Vicki's co-worker, and he claims that he was having an affair with her. They were just saying they were having an affair in the news, but until that's confirmed in some way, I don't really want to say that because if that's not true, then I wouldn't want someone to be saying that about me. And it's sad because it was really, really difficult to find anything about this case whatsoever. This seems like to me, someone who was maybe abducted and taken somewhere or killed and her body was dumped. And then there's nothing about her. I couldn't find anything about her as a person, family, anything like that. So the story that he said is that they were having an affair and that this was a truly tragic accident. What that accident was, I don't know. I tried really hard to find more about that, but I was unable to. So during the investigation, White told a friend that he was planning to commit suicide. He had written letters, and he gave them to his wife, and he said they're going to explain everything. And he kind of made this whole thing about he was you know, going to kill himself and then everyone would be distributed these letters, but he never ended up doing it. So this same friend who he told he was planning to commit suicide worked alongside White as a long haul trucker for many years. And he described White as kind of a perv saying he knew how to talk to all the prostitutes on the radio. He knew where all the CD semi truck stops were. All of his stories from the Navy had to do with ports of call and ladies of the night. So, it's kind of what we were talking about before. This guy could have been on the road killing sex workers left and right, and we would never know about it. Israel Keys.
1: Yep. Israel Keys. And especially, we've talked about this before, but back then, I mean, even in the 90s and the late 80s, police departments didn't work together. So, especially if he's long haul and crossing state lines,
2: mm-hmm. right? You
1: know, in theory, there could be a bunch of victims, and they were just never connected to him.
2: So in 1981, he did say to his first victim, this isn't my first time. So who knows if he was just saying that to get her to calm down because I think she was fighting back. But it does beg the question, has this guy first been kind of honing his craft on these sex workers who don't, you know, they aren't missed in the same way as other people because they are gone at odd hours. They might be gone for days or weeks at a time. So people might not even know that they're missing right away. And he obviously has this M.O. where he wants to violently kill people and then dispose of their body in the woods because he disposes allegedly dispose of Vicky Sue Wall and Rebecca Gay both in the woods. So if you're a trucker and you kill someone and then you dump them on these like desolate highways, it would take a long time for them to be ID'd if ever.
1: Yeah. If they're ever even found or reported right. missing or anything like that, you know,
2: in court records, it was stated that defendant was responsible for the deterioration of Vicky wall's body by leaving her in the woods. And he was the last person to see her alive. He pleaded guilty to involuntary manslaughter Kalamazoo County Circuit Judge John Foley sentenced White in May 1995 to 8 to 15 years in prison, and he noted that he was concerned for White's mental health and recommended an evaluation and mental health therapy before being paroled. Instead, White skipped parole entirely and was released for good behavior in 2007.
0: I got one thing to say, and this may not need to make the podcast, but if I'm ever going to commit a crime, I'm going to Michigan. (laughs) the hell are these judges doing it's
2: crazy
1: well and we've run into this before where it's infuriating where if this person would have been held to accountability for the original crimes we wouldn't be covering the stories that we're covering but because it's like a slap on the wrist sentence the case that really sticks out to me is Derek Todd Lee and that's going all the way back to episode number two but he was the Baton Rouge serial killer where he had been arrested multiple times for peeping and assault and he just kept getting let out and the fines kept getting smaller instead of larger. It's It's like 200 bucks. I
2: remember listening to that and it was just so infuriating because it was like, you're seeing a pattern in real time. He's starting to escalate. Like maybe we should not just give him a fine. Maybe there is something else going on here. And then obviously he saw that and just kept going because, there was there were no repercussions.
0: Yeah, it's like okay, here's 200 bucks. I'm going to keep going peeping. But like if in 1981 if he would have been charged with attempted manslaughter or attempted murder or whatever, he wouldn't have committed more crimes.
2: I was really shocked that he was charged for leaving her in the woods and he was responsible for the deterioration of her body. That was just really concerning to me and really strange i've never heard of that before have you guys ever heard of that
0: no like what kind of charge is that oh okay like you let her you let her decompose but you didn't kill her let me just give you five years for that one
2: yeah it was like are you saying that he's not responsible for her death but then he disposed of her body that's yeah i don't know it was very confusing to me because she left with him it's clear that the police were pursuing him as their primary suspect. And then he was just responsible for the deterioration of her body. So not really justice served there.
1: No. And it sounds like, you know, the Michigan thrill kill case that we did very early in the the podcast, but one of the charges of mutilation of a human corpse. And so I wonder Mm -hmm. if that is in that kind of situation where like, say an accident does happen. You didn't kill that person. Or let's say like you would have come in the room and that person would have shot themselves. Like, committed suicide okay. and then you just take their body and you're like, I'm not going to call it in or anything like that, but I'm going to dispose of the body. You didn't actually murder them, but you're getting rid of the the body. So I wonder if that's kind right. of what that charges for, but it also seems like a very specific type of thing that would have to happen. But then you're like, well, apparently it has happened because there is some kind of charge they can tie it to. You know what I mean?
2: That does make sense because if, He's calling this a truly tragic accident. Maybe he's saying a gun went off or maybe he's, you know, there's the speculation again is we don't know what happened or what he's saying happened. And they couldn't prove or disprove what he was saying because her body was so badly decomposed.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I wonder if because she was so decomposed and they couldn't have a true cause of death, they can't really say he killed her. Because they don't know what happened to her. But I still think it's ridiculous.
2: And he has never been charged with a sex crime. Um, So he did not have to register as an offender of any kind. Um, And Rebecca's sister, Deborah Gay, said her family wanted to see the creation of a registry for violent offenders such as White. And she said her sister might be alive if she had known about White's violent history. And there was a news article on the Michigan news site, I'm Live, that asked readers how they felt about a violent offender registry because of this case, but Michigan still does not have that. I love that idea.
0: I think that's I, great. I do, too. And I was actually watching the news last night, which I don't normally do. It was either last night or the night before. And they are putting don't trick or treat at this house on all the sex offenders in Jefferson Parish's um, that's doors. That's great. I thought, that is awesome. You know, because you just don't know. You don't know your neighbors anymore.
2: No. I Michigan has a really easy to use website for sex offenders. And it will, you can put in a name, an address, anything like that. Um, and it will show you a radius. So if you want to put like your own home address in, and then it'll show you a radius of sex offenders who live and work near you. And then it'll show you what degree it was and a general idea Of what it was they were arrested for, so or charged with. So that I have found to be very helpful. And if there was a violent, like these are very violent crimes, this is not, this is not, he got into a fight one time and he got arrested at at the bar. This is premeditated. You know, he told a story to his neighbor to lure her into the basement, which is so creepy. And then he stabbed her with a hunting knife multiple times. And then, you know, he's connected to this, you know, body of Vicki Wall. So
0: this isn't just bad luck for, the, for no, this guy.
2: You would have to literally do an intense Google search of every single person you've ever known to bring this up because I live in Michigan and I had never heard of this this case. And this was a sensationalized case. And then if you go back, there's even more that I didn't know about. So if he were a neighbor of mine, would I know about it? Uh, If he moved here, probably not. This makes me
0: want to go and look up all my neighbors. Sorry, neighbors.
1: (laughs) Well, this is just like the true crime for the short on time episode one that we just did, where there's a guy living in your neighborhood who has a woman chained up in his basement. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And this lady escapes and just shows up at his neighbor's door. It's like, help, help me. I was, you know what I mean? It's like,
2: yeah. And you're like, wait a minute. My neighbor has someone in their house and you know, who knows how many times this happened before and how long this has been going on. It's been, you know, you're going for a walk, walking right by the house and you have no idea that's happening in or there.
1: waving at him when he's mowing the lawn. You know, he had yeah. an eight year old kid. So the kid's just out playing in the front yard. You know what I mean? It's like, you never know.
2: Yeah. So the January after he killed Rebecca, White had um, a court appointed attorney and he waived his right to a preliminary probable cause hearing. And then in March 2013, um, so that following March, he struck a plea deal and he pleaded guilty to second degree murder and he was sentenced to 56 to 85 years in prison, which is the maximum under that plea deal. And according to a written statement from the Michigan Reformatory in Ionia, where White was jailed, he was found by facility officials after 4 a.m. Wednesday, August 28th, 2013, suffering from self-inflicted asphyxiation. So he hung himself in jail.
0: All I can say is I'm glad that he finally got the sentence he deserved back in 1981. It makes me so mad when people commit suicide at the end of all these cases. It's like, I think all the families, you know, of the prior crimes that, you know, White didn't get all of the years um, that he deserved. I think they can get some sort of feeling of justice was served with the 56 to 85 years. But it's just so frustrating when these people finally get the sentencing on which I think they deserve. And then they kill themselves.
2: And it was quick. It was he... Didn't serve very much time at all. Four months or so.
0: Well, Jess, I think you brought a good one this week.
2: (laughs) Yeah, as I was researching, I was like, wow, there's actually, there's more to it than the headline in this one.
1: Yeah, and it's definitely interesting, too, because I wonder if the reality of what he had done. I think that there has got to be, in the number of cases that we've done, you get slaps on the wrist for so long. That when you are finally pinned with this big one and the reality of like, oh, I'm going to be in prison for the rest of my life. And then thinking about that type of offender, what the experience is like for that type of offender in prison. Right. If it's like I'm just checking out because they've got me and it's either I can go out this way or I can go to prison.
2: I was not able to uh, see if this was a verified fact. But in one of the articles that I read, he apparently confessed. He allegedly confessed because he said that he wanted to make a deal where he would be separated from other inmates.
1: Yeah, because they don't play. You know, there, there's certain types of crimes that if you are convicted of committing and then you go into prison, like your life is going to be a waking nightmare. You know, and I'm sure that that is exactly what he had in store for him.
2: And how dare he when he does this to women and then he's like, oh, I can't take it <laughs> from other. It's like, well, then I guess you shouldn't have done that to other people. Because you're
0: a coward. Yeah, he's a exactly. Coward. He got off scot-free for 32 years
2: mm-hmm.
0: with a slap on the hand and he's a coward.
1: Well, and I think you see that yes. in the crimes that he committed too. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you attack somebody in their sleep with a hammer or you lure a 17-year-old into your basement. You know, it's not like you're like, I'm going to attack me, a you know, 35 year old bodybuilder. You know what I mean? Like you're right. going after <laughs> yeah. people who can't fight back and trying to get them in vulnerable situations. So.
2: Yeah. And people who trust you because he had a relationship with Vicki wall. He had a relationship with Rebecca gay. So it, you know, the first, uh, the 17 year old was his neighbor. So he was taking advantage that these people knew him and was using that to a complete creep and then put them into a situation that probably was very confusing and then, you know, committing these vicious, heinous, violent crimes against them.
1: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like he went out the way that he lived like a coward, you know, but I'm with Olivia. I think this was a heavy hitter. I think this was a heck of a Halloween case, 110%. Olivia, I'm going to turn it over to you first because Like I was saying, there's a lot of stuff that kind of hit me as we were going through this episode. But I want to know, where does this fall on your deadbolt test?
0: I'm going to give it a nine. I think it was a great one. I, as a single woman who is new to my neighborhood, I've been here a year. I try to get to know my neighbors. And... You know, because I never know when I'll need something. And I feel like my next-door neighbor I've got a pretty good rapport with. Like, hey, can you grab this package? Or, hey, I'm going to be out of town. Can you watch my house? But now it makes me feel like I need to go and, like, run a background check on my neighbors just to make sure that I can actually trust them. You know, and then I mentioned before, you yeah, I've been running in the neighborhood. I try to wave at everybody as I'm going by and keep an eye on, like, what car lives here and who lives that and who's always on their porch. And this is just kind of creepy to me. It is a man who you can trust and he kind of manipulated himself into a situation where he could hurt these women. So I'm stuck with the solid nine.
2: What's shocking to me is that it sounded like his congregation knew about his past. And All 14 were, of them.
0: They were probably cult-like. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of church was he running?
2: And yeah, and they still, when they heard about Rebecca being missing and him being brought in for questioning, they still were taking his side until basically he confessed. Not to say I don't believe in redemption, but those are very specific, very violent crimes. And it happened more than once, probably. So it was disturbing that not only do you trust this man, but you're following him as part of his congregation. So he's telling you the right way to live your life.
0: Yeah, and he's not living his life by the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. <laughs> Thou shalt love thy neighbor.
2: Yeah. It,
0: don't, don't get me started on my Ten Commandments.
2: <laughs> John, I'm interested to hear your scale because you're a dude. So I'm I'm curious about where it falls on the devil scale for you.
1: This is true. I am a dude. <laughs> <laughs> a bald dude. A bald dude now. So for me, I'm going to say that this is a nine as well. And, and if you listen to the show you be like, yeah, John, we get it. Okay. But this hits on a theme that is terrifying to me. And I feel like we've actually hit it quite frequently over the last couple episodes, but it's the randomness, right? Cause if you're walking around and you're this girl, you're Rebecca, I got this neighbor, he's dating my mom, everything's great. He helps me out with my kid. I could trust him. And then randomly, I feel a blow to the head and I wake up in the middle of the night and I have no sense that any of this is coming. And then it's there. That is, that's terrifying. It goes hand in hand with the home invasion, just the wrong place, wrong time. Cause you can plan for every disaster possible in your life. But if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, doesn't matter how prepared you are, you know? And so for me, right. that's the terrifying aspect I'm the complete opposite of Olivia. We've lived in this house for like six years. I know nothing about my neighbors because I don't want to know anything about them. <laughs> I'm like,
0: I'm like, I want to move next door just to put a camera over your. I fin- know.
1: We like like I'll wave. I'll be like, "Hey, what's going on?" I don't know the the people that live directly on side to side of me. I know their first names. Have not had more than a five minute conversation with either one of them in six years. I lived here, so.
0: Oh my gosh, you're a bad neighbor. No, Jess, do you know your neighbors?
2: Um, I just moved. So when I lived in my last house, I just knew my next-door neighbors. And then now that I've moved to where I'm at now, I know almost every single one of my neighbors. We, our kids play, and we see them almost every day. We talk, like, very different situation than my last house. I never thought I would be, like, that kind of a person to hang out with my neighbors. But they're all really cool. We all get along really well. But um, I kind of make it my business to know about everyone around me in my life at all times. And so I do look into people because I don't want to be surprised (laughs) by anything like that. But I just I it takes me a long time to trust someone on a level like I personally would not let you know, a mom's boyfriend babysit my son, like ever, but that's just me. So everyone's different. But even if you trust someone, like we are very specific about who we let in our circle, who we let near our son, things like that. But there's always, you know, no one ever knows what's going on in someone's head. And so you have no idea what actually is really happening.
0: Right and it's always scary to say not to put scary thoughts in your head but like they always say that like it's someone that you know that usually is the child molester or right. yes. you know a, you know doing things
2: Yep that's that's kind of what a lot of um a lot of people have an issue with like the stranger danger portion mm-hmm. because it's not just strangers yes strangers are probably going to be the one abducting things like that but as far as The other kind of stuff that is more often someone that's in the family or a neighbor or a family friend that has access to the child and has established trust with the family. Like that is their goal is to establish trust so that if the kid ever does say something, they're not going to believe what happened. And it's really sad that that happens because you should always believe your kids.
1: But it's the monster, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, exactly. Could it be this person? Could it? you know, is my kid just telling tall tales and I'm with you like always believe I will kick somebody straight through the chest and ask questions later. When my kid is like this person did this to me, I believe you and only you in that moment, but it's just,
2: yeah, absolutely. That's how I am too. I'll, yeah, I'll do, (laughs) I'll do with the repercussions later, (laughs) but, um, it is kind of a different world that we live in now, where we do have access to information, you know, In the 80s and 90s, when he was, you know, involved with these other uh, crimes, there was no internet to turn to where you could just find everything you need to know about someone's criminal record right at your fingertips. Now it's a lot easier. But again, is, you know, is it feasible for every person to know every single thing about every single person you know? No, it's just not possible. So... It's it is super scary, to because when you're you know, I think, you know, John and I watch a lot of horror movies. And so there's and I know, Olivia, you've talked about this, too. You kind of always have a plan of like if someone breaks into your house, like what are you going to do here are the different scenarios you can come up with. But number one, you never know in the moment. And number two, in this scenario, it's always a stranger. It's not someone, you know, who's breaking into your house That you're, you know, trying to make this plan about. So if someone, if someone just walked into my door right now and it was someone I knew, I wouldn't be like, you broke into my house. I'd be like, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing here, Jeff? And then you, yeah, and you're caught off guard.
0: Yeah, I would be freaked out. And then the fact that I hope it just, I hope it haunted him when she said, I know you. And then he killed her.
1: Mm. I'm curious because Olivia and I are both in a nine, but you did the research on this. You know, you're the one who invested the time. So walking away from it after kind of doing your first case this way, where are you putting this on the deadbolt test? Is this something that you think you're going to carry with you?
2: I think if I weren't the kind of person that I am where I do research about pretty much everyone that I allow into my circle, then it might be a 10. But I do try and see in my area where I'm hanging, you know, spending time like I do try and make a note of like where the sex offenders live and work and avoid those areas, you know, make sure that my son avoids those areas. Um, But something like this, where they were talking about a violent crime registry, we don't have that. I think only three States have it. And it really would be helpful if they did have to register like a sex offender does. And then we could just very easily see Within where we're working or within where we're living, here's what this person did. And then you kind of get an idea of what they might be capable of that you might, oh, that's the guy that smiles at me and waves every day. I would have never thought that because you don't know. Just the, these killers are not walking around going, I'm a killer. I'm, you know, <laughs> or they're not like, you know, looking a certain way. It could be anybody. So it is really, it is really scary. And just the fact that he, was a trusted person and then he broke into her house and then he was so brutal with her and then just the element of the kid was there it was just it was the whole thing was horrifying
1: so olivia myself our wonderful special guest jessica gomez we are all giving this case a nine but we want to know where does john d white fall on your deadbolt test you can reach out to us on the socials. Let us know. Find us on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. We're on Twitter at Check the Locks. And if you're not in our Facebook group, stop the show right now. If you have a Facebook account, go join. Said this every single episode is the best place on the Internet. Jessica, it bums me out that you don't have Facebook because I feel like you would have a great time <laughs> in this group. Um, but everybody is just so nice and welcoming. And that's great. It's awesome. I We've talked about it before because I know. You know, we've talked about in previous conversations how toxic like social media is. And it's really weird to be a part of something on the Internet where everyone's like, hey, have a great day. Love what you do. Everything's all." nobody. I've never seen a mean comment. Anybody being rude. to. It's it's insane. It's very, very cool. So if you're not in the Facebook group, please take a moment. Sign up. Olivia, Jessica. This was a heavy case. I think we should do a five star review. What do you guys think?
0: This week's five star review comes from CMOC, and they said, I found this podcast by accident and so glad I did. It has more and more to offer. I'm off to check out the Facebook group. I will just have to sit in suspense for next week's episode. So thank you, CMOC, for leaving us a five star review.
1: Yes, thank you so much, CMOC. You know, we talk about it every single episode, but leaving these reviews really helps us, gets us in other shows suggestions, and helps us grow our community and, and our listeners and our audience and things like that. So Really appreciate you taking the time to leave that five-star review. We would love to send you some free stuff. We got stickers. We got magnets. We got buttons. We have some new clear stickers, which are really cool.
0: Yeah, as I was say, we have new clear stickers.
1: So we've got tons of stuff that we'd like to get you. Again, you can find us on the socials. Reach out to us. Let us know. Instagram, check the locks pod. Twitter, check the locks. Reach out to us on the Facebook group. And if you are not a social person, That's totally fine. Head over to checkthelogspod.com. Click that email button. Leave us an email. We'll be more than happy to get everything sent out to you. Olivia, if somebody wants to have their five-star review read on the show, what is the best way to do that?
0: I think now I'm just going to have to start bribing people with leaving me voicemails instead of five-star reviews. But anyways, Mm -hmm. if you want your uh, five-star review read on the show, you need to go to the Apple Podcast app, scroll all the way to the bottom where you see the five stars, click all five stars, and leave us a review. Um, let us know what you think about the podcast
1: Yeah please take some time There is a link in the show notes You can click that link It'll take you right to Apple Podcasts Where you can subscribe to the show You can leave us a five star review We would love to hear from you Love to hear what you think We would also love to hear your voices Olivia gets sad every week That we do not have a voicemail And then I have to hear about it And it breaks my heart So
0: And now Jessica has to hear about now,
1: it Now we have a guest <laughs> And she's like This is the awkward sad part <laughs>
2: Come on, guys, leave them voicemails. She's literally (laughs) crying over here.
1: So we want to hear your voice. We want to hear what you think about the episodes, what you've been liking, what we could do differently. Head over to Check the Locks Pod. In the bottom right-hand corner, there is a microphone. Click that microphone. Leave us a voicemail. We would love to hear from you. Also, we have a big announcement this week. We do? We do. We are (laughs) officially launching the Check the Locks Patreon account. Ooh. yes. So we are glad to have you here for this announcement. Jessica just seems like a big episode in general. So if you're listening to the show and you are not familiar with Patreon, not a problem. We're going to cover what that is very, very quickly. Patreon is a way that you can help us to financially support the show. We're going to be very upfront and honest with you. Editing takes time. Jessica Gomez is our guest today. She can contest the research takes time. We are looking to raise funds so that we can kind of outsource some of this work if we're able to outsource that work, we can then create more content. We'll have more things like true crime for the short on time. We'll be able to do, you know, maybe some video podcasts, things like that. So our whole goal is to be able to do more content that hopefully you guys will love. So we do have several different tiers. They range from $3 a month to $25 a month, just depending on how much you want to donate. If you do want to donate at all, Check the locks will always be free, right? This does not mean that you have to pay to hear the episodes, anything like that. This is just I like what you guys do, want to help support you, and I also like some perks, right? So we have a three dollar tier, just says hey, like what you guys are doing, love helping out. We have a five dollar tier, you get a custom sticker. Fifteen dollar tier, get you a sticker and a mug plus everything else. So there's a link in the show notes. Make sure that you check it out. Big shout out to Miss Pam Armstrong who is in our Facebook group. She was a Patreon member before we have even said anything about it. She's been a Patreon member for like four weeks now before we even knew that we were actually going to launch it. So I just woke up oh, one day wow. and she had just joined. So
0: she's the OG. she is. She is the godmother
1: mm-hmm. of the Patreon. So
0: thank you, Pam.
1: Thank you, Pam. Check out the link. We would love to hear your feedback. That is it for this week's episode. Before we go, Jessica, if people want to find out more about what you do, follow your work, We know that you have a thriller coming out, you know, you're currently shopping that around where can people go to find out more about you? What's the best way to keep track on what you are working on?
2: So you can follow me on Instagram at writer, Jessica Gomez. Um, I'll post links on there um, to my link tree and kind of here and there, what I'm doing, what I'm working on. Um, Yeah. I I finished a thriller novel that I'm querying agents for right now. So Hopefully some positive news about that in the future. And yeah, if you follow me on there, I I do post a lot of what I do. So um, if you're interested, you can follow me.
1: Yeah. I love your all horror articles. We just actually shared to our Instagram story, your Halloween ends review. So if you are a horror film fan, definitely worth checking out and all horror. Actually, if you search Jessica Gomez, all horror in Google, it'll bring up her link list. Every article that she's written there, check it out because they are some of my favorite things to read on the internet, but.
2: Oh, thank you. And before
1: we wrap up, thank you again for being here. Thank you for doing this. I know myself and I'm, I'm not trying to speak for Olivia, but I'm sure she has the same sentiment, but it was just so much fun to have you. And this was a completely different experience for us. So thank you so much for doing it.
2: Yeah.
0: I loved having you here. You can come back anytime you want. Thank you.
2: I would love to come back. Yes. I'm very into true crime and. You know, I love you guys' podcasts, and so I, I really appreciate you guys having me on and trusting me to choose a case and do the research and everything like that. It's it's nice to talk to other true crime fanatics and kind of flush out the story rather than just reading it on your own.
0: And I also want to give a shout out to Jess because you wrote our bio on our website. So if you go over to checkdelocks.com and look at our bio, it was actually written by the Jessica Gomez. So, yes, thank you. I, so, you were a big part in getting welcome. us started.
2: Yeah, I, well, it was exciting for me because I got to have all the inside info before the podcast uh, started. So, I had all the little details about what was coming up. And so, it was exciting for me to do that for you guys.
0: And thank you for supporting us as well. So, we appreciate that. But yes, you're yeah, welcome anytime.
1: <laughs> thank
2: you guys. Really appreciate
1: it. No, the pleasure is all ours. Thank you again so much. And guys, that is it. This is 25 episodes. Halloween, 25 episodes. Thank you for the support. Thank you for hanging out with us these last 25 weeks. We will see you again next week for a brand new, truly terrifying true crime case. But until then, don't forget to
0: check the locks.
1: See you next week.